um, just for those I haven't met, my name is Sarah. I use the pronoun she and her. And I thought just briefly I could actually um, describe myself physically a little bit, in part be for those who can't see me, but also um, just to say a little bit about the Zen accoutrement, you know, <laughs> for, for because I, some folks are, are newer or maybe have wondered, you know, and didn't want to ask. And um, so let's see. In my physical body, I'm um, in the United States. I'm racialized as white, so European descended. I think I look kind of Irish. I have a lot of Irish heritage. So my face is kind of angular, <laughs> kind of pointy. And I have uh, short hair. Uh, in tr the tradition in, in Soto Zen for priests is to shave their head and keep it shaved. Um, I have shaved my head. It doesn't last very long. <laughs> like by the next morning, I have a glow over. I'm like a chia pet. <laughs> so I like stick to my pillow. And, um, and I, but I do keep my hair short as a practice of renunciation. So this is a, an expression of my life as a priest. And I cut my hair about once a month. Um, and, because, and I was thinking about my robes that are the robes that priests wear in this tradition. So you can, there are layers, you know, so there's a, there, so I'm, I'm in my Western or my American conditioned body with Western underwear. And then there's a white layer and a gray layer, usually. Sometimes the gray is a different color. Um, these are, these are um, Japanese robes, so the jubon is a, halfway that has a color that's white and then over that is a kimono that goes all the way down past my is the longest layer so so here's my like americanized body the first two layers are japanese clothing this next layer i mean priests in japan wear this next layer but the original um, design of this black karoma with these giant like very long sleeves i think were confucian scholars right so this, kind of, so this design comes from China. So there's this, and then the last layer is, is the um, okesa, which is in the pattern of rice fields. And, and almost all Buddhist robes, so from, these, from the small blue rocka suits that people sew here to the um, orange saffron robes of Theravadan monks and nuns to, you know, like to all the different kinds of robes you'll see around the world usually have this kind of patterning of, um, we call them joes in, in this, but the, in our tradition, but they're just um, different strips of fabric overlapping in the pattern of a rice field, which comes from the time of the Buddha. So the Buddha said, we'll make our robes this way. So it's Indian. You know? So I think um, it's just a neat contemplation that when we're sitting here in these robes, we're liter literally like wrapped in this lineage of, of the teaching moving across cultures. And then the last thing I'll just mention, because I, I didn't know about this for a long time, and I, even when I lived in a monastery, uh, I'm carrying this wooden stick. This, a friend of mine made this from pecan wood. Um, I ordained in Houston at the Houston Zen Center, and, and my teacher lives there, and this was from a tree near there. My friend Greg Fain made this. And it's a piece of wood that's like, you know, about maybe a foot long, and then at the end it's beautifully curved. And this, is, this represents the Buddha's tongue, in case you haven't heard that before. <laughs> it's called, we call it a kotsu, in, or in Japanese it's called a kotsu. And there's a lot to say about that. I, or other, I've also heard, Reb talks about it as a sky hook. Um, 
but it's um, an emblem of, of being empowered to teach and having holding that seat. So just a little bit of. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask us to maybe just take a few moments <clears throat> um, and a few breaths and close your eyes if you feel comfortable doing that or that that's useful and or not if it doesn't feel comfortable and um, and just take a few uh, moments to pour your awareness into your physical body into each of our physical you know for each of us into our physical body Really gather your awareness there and just see what's there. And I want to particularly invite, can you come across any sensations that are, that are familiar but often you don't notice or give much attention to? In some ways, just, just um, inviting today uh, a lifting up in value of those sensations that, that don't always get our full attention. <clears throat> so koans, for those who haven't encountered them, are these like short stories. Many of them come from China in our tradition of, of Zen encounters, usually between teachers and students. And this is a story of Master Ma. Was, Ma was a great teacher. He was known as like a very a great, fierce teacher. And he was sick. Um, or maybe dying. And the superintendent, so the, here's, the, here's the whole koan. Master Ancestor Ma was sick. The superintendent of the monastery asked him, how are you feeling these days? And the ancestor said, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. And then this, um, this koan is in, different is in different collections. So it's in the Book of Serenity and the Blue Crypt record. record. But in the Blue Crift record, the verse that goes with this, so this is what's also been like deeply turning in me, says, uh, for 20 years I have struggled fiercely. How many times have I gone down to the blue dragon's cave for you? This distress is worth recounting. Clear-eyed bodhisattvas should not take it lightly. So for those who you know, whether you've encountered koans or not, they're, they're teaching stories that um, there are like nifty explanations of every word and every meaning. And, but um, in my experience of work, like the way that they can work for us is that we just hang out with them. Like you, we, we encounter them more like poetry. Um, and the verse is the same. And he, the terms that are used that are good to know are sun-faced Buddha and moon-faced Buddha. And a sun-faced Buddha, it refers to a Buddha that lives for like, so that has a lifespan that is like kalpas and kalpas, so like beyond our conception of time even. So a super enduring Buddha, timeless Buddha. And a moon-faced Buddha is a Buddha that lives for one day. Um, and these are, and so, um, and Master Ma, I, I love this koan. I feel like Master Ma, I feel like the teaching is very similar to the, one of the teachings that Charlie brought last week of the world of do is the world of do and yet and yet, which is, to me, this is Master Ma. This is him saying, and yet, you know, um, I'm, I'm sick and I'm dying. 
and I'm, I'm contending with my physical body's impermanence. And I'm sitting here at the juncture of the way that I am a part of things that never die and the way that I am also dying. That's how I hear this. Yeah. And this is how I am, the balance of these, the, the integration of these, or the, or the dynamic relationship of these. And the Blue Dragon's Cave is also, um, could be a lot of things, <laughs> but also could be seen as, as this world of, of samsara. So the world we live in, the, the human realm as we experience it, the world of suffering or the world of impermanence. But, but you know, I, it is the world of suffering, but it's also our world, you know, and yet, <laughs> this, is, this is where we come to be and to love and to feel. When Charlie was saying that last week, because it's a poem I thought about, I love this Isa, Kobayashi Isa's poem, The World of Dew is the World of Dew, and yet, and yet. And I heard in my, I heard in my mind, in my body, actually, it was more like, and yet it is the whole of my heart, this, this intersection of things that are vast beyond our conception and also very fleeting. Um, so going down into the Blue Dragon's Cave is like, is a bodhisattva's commitment to live in this world and not drift away only to a sun face world where everything's everlasting, but to be here with, with, with that, don't lose that either, but, but don't lose sight of and impermanent and fleeting. This koan also um, took on a lot of meaning for me. I, don't, I, I won't talk too much about our, our middle child, our daughter Sati, or Satya, as I have on my This is my tattoo, another physical description. <laughs> I have a tattoo on my arm, it says Satya, and that's in honor of our middle child, who um, was a moon-faced Buddha. She lived for one day. And, um, and I, you know, there's, I like talking about my daughter, actually. Um, she would be 15 now. Um, it's part of how I stay connected to her, to talk about her. And, um, and you know, it, it's really hard when an infant dies. So the tragedy part of it was not lost on me. <laughs> and there's a huge impact on my life and my family's life. Um, also, though, um, Sati really brought to me this teaching about a moon-faced Buddha. And when I went home, and, and what I mean by that is that like there was something in the time, so I spent, you know, we spent her whole lifetime together in the hospital. Um, and it was a full life in its own way. And there was something, I think because I was her mom and, and this commitment was like, well, this is what it is, so sh don't miss it, <laughs> you know? and. I really did it, didn't miss it. And um, there was also, so along with the tragedy and confusion and pain and anguish, there was this like rightness that's very hard to describe. But then it's so awesome that in our tradition, there's this teaching like some beings live for a day and they're Buddhas. And she really lives in my life as a great teacher, as a Buddha, the wisdom being. When I went home from the hospital, our older daughter Kaya was four and a half at the time, and she had a, she had like the junior version of Ranger Rick, 
And uh, the whole back page you would feature some beat creature. And the whole back page, this was one of the first things that happened when I got home to our apartment in Massachusetts where we were living in Cambridge, was Kaya sitting me down and wanted to go through because the magazine had just arrived and it was very exciting. And, and uh, we looked at the back page and it was about Luna moths. And Luna moths, they live for about a week maybe, not a day. They're, they're short-lived creatures. They, they don't really have mouths and they have like vestigial digestive organs, <laughs> that's what I've read recently. So they don't like, they're here to reproduce and die. That's what they do. And be beautiful actually, and be a teaching actually. And there was something about reading that reindeer Rick thing, the baby reindeer Rick that was like, oh, the world includes this. The world includes beings that, that live for a day. That's how it is. We don't want to talk about it maybe, but it is how it is. And there's a rightness. So that, that, so this koan, which was one that I already quite liked, opened more for me. And like, and, and Master Ma's brilliance actually, that um, he was describing, or, or to me, this koan describes the wholeness of that intersection of everything vast and connected beyond, beyond ephemeralness, beyond temporality, beyond limit. And also everything will die. Everything will change. It will end. And then I love, I, 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 maybe I've read it in the past, but I've only, it's only come into my awareness or it's refreshed in my awareness. This verse that encourages us, you know, for 20 years I've struggled fiercely and I, to me that sounds like I have resisted integrating these. I've struggled against being okay with impermanence. But how many times have I made this commitment to this world of fleetingness and, and, and vastness? And then the next, the next words are, this distress is worth recounting, and clear-eyed bodhisattvas should not take it lightly. Um, one of the gifts of, of being um, in the role of being a Dharma teacher is I get to talk to people. Actually, it's just one of the gifts of being alive for me. Um, and this, there's a theme that's been alive both when I'm talking to people in Dokusan or in, a, in the role of being a Dharma teacher and also just talking to people <laughs> in other roles and other ways that I move through the world. Um, but it's been super vivid in, in Dokusan, like one person after another. I'm trying out this theory, and you can tell me your thoughts about it. Um, that no matter, no matter the person, no matter their cultural background, no matter their identities, and these, and these vary greatly, um, it feels to me like everyone I encounter, including myself, is, comes from a long line of people who have not been able to fully address their pain. Does that seem true for you? <laughs> and, and really like what's sort of beautiful and also devastating about it is this seems to be true for everybody. <laughs> so different cultures have our different ways <laughs> of repressing pain. Or, you know, and then I'm like, well, I don't know. I, you know, maybe, 
you know, we, it, it's just been hard. It's hard to be human. <laughs> and it has been hard. It's, hard. it's been hard to just find enough food, it, you know, until pretty recently and still is for many people right now, you know. So if you're worried about food or shelter or these basic things or just your basic safety, and again, like and many people in the United States, maybe there's, maybe there's food or maybe there's shelter, but basic safety is constantly threatened for many of us. If, if those are our concerns, um, it is simply resilient to learn to compartmentalize, <laughs> you know. So I don't mean to, yeah, I had this thought, like, I don't mean we should all be falling over all the time, you know. Um, I work, another role I have in the world is working as a, a grief counselor and accompanying people in grief. And one of the things, one of the skills we help people learn in acute grief when you're when it's like just too it's so overwhelming is is like a very healthy possibility of compartmentalization this is not the, a, the skill of repression which i you know it's dubious if that's a skill um, but of course but we all you know we have all learned probably different forms of repression but for example, when we're in a states of acute grief and, and also we have other things to attend to in the world, one of the things we can do is, um, again, like as Charlie was offering last week, like turn our whole elephant body toward the pain and look at it and be like, I see you, but I have to go do things in the world where I can't, I can't bring you with me because the level of vulnerability you require is more than would work in that situation. <laughs> you don't have to be this verbose if you don't want to with your grief. <laughs> you know, but it's like, but you know, we, we look clearly and we see the fullness of that pain and we say, I see you and I promise I'll be back, but I'd like you to wait here. <laughs> I'm gonna move into the world and I'm gonna look all functional. I'm gonna fool everybody. <laughs> I can say, I have done that. Or, or I'm not, I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna inhabit a different part of myself that can deal with grocery shopping, that can deal with this meeting I have, and then I'll come back to you, and, and, we'll, and we'll find time to, and then I'll fall to pieces, you know. And, and again, so I feel like that's a model for all of our pain, actually, I think. But, but the trick is, or the, the, or the skill is, to do this knowingly. And then, the, first, and then secondly, it's to make sure you come back. Because sometimes once you put that on the shelf, in the closet, in the basement. <laughs> Way down there, you're like, I don't really want to open that door again. You know, I'm feeling okay right now, you know. But it's good, it's good, but this distress is worth recounting. This distress is worth honoring and uh, being in a relationship to. So don't leave it down there. <laughs> when our grief and distress gets lonely, it turns into a monster. And, and in some forms, I think that's all of us have inherited those, the monsters that, that pe maybe people even meant to get back to them, but they just ran out of time. Um, so kind of what I want to offer is that there, there aren't any small pains or there aren't any like small discomforts. We've all been socialized to um, learn to minimize things to protect ourselves. 
And again, this, this will vary depending on our identities and in the hierarchy of oppressions. <coughs> you know, like I can say for myself, as a female acculturated person, I learned by watching that um, when people would say diminishing things about people in female bodies, I would, um, I learned to laugh, actually. Like, I didn't think it was funny. But I, I somehow, I, somewhere along the way, learned it was adaptive to be like, ah, and then move away from that person as much as I could. That's painful, you know. Like right now, I can feel like, yeah, no, I, I could spend some time with the pain of having learned that. I can also see like it was adaptive. I, you know, I had to, I need to move through my day. And we all have those, I'm sure. And no matter our identities, I'm sure everybody, even if you're at the, if you're the apex <laughs> of the oppression identities, we all still have them. Um, and, and one of the things I think that we can do as um, human beings that have had the great gift of encountering the Dharma in this society and in this time, given a whole bunch of factors, maybe some of it is psychology included, but other stuff, right? Like maybe we don't have to spend so much time figuring out where our food's coming from. Maybe we have a little bit of energy to give to attending to these feelings that we were told to keep small. And that when we can do that, we, um, we can make an offering of our effort backward to the people that we come from and free them up maybe from, um, yeah, from those things be having become monsters. We can, we can make an offering of our effort to um, look into, you know, like just a little, you know, like I just feel a little weird in the situation. It feels a little weird. It feels a little off, you know. And, and here I feel like the Dharma totally supports us. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. This distress is worth recounting. Pay attention. And that sometimes, like in Dokusan, I've had that experience that somebody's like, oh, I just feel a little something. And I was like, well, what if we don't skip over? And often what we find there is like a world system. It's not small. It could be small. We could make it small because we had something else we want to talk about. But if we don't make it small, there's a world of unmet pain that we've inherited uh, both from this lifetime and from the people that came before us, and or maybe you know maybe our other lifetimes, and part of caring for it, or to me I think a, a really nurturing thing to do is to bring it into the light of the Dharma. And and see it there, so seeing it like if there's so yeah like if we're if we're in Dokusan, it's like here we are together. Let's just look at this. How big is this? You know. It looked, like a, it looked like a fin, you know, but now actually it's a leviathan. <laughs> it looked like an ice cube, but it's actually an iceberg. I, I, this is not in my notes, so I won't, go to, I won't stray too far, but I, I watched a movie on Mr. Rogers. There's a doc documentary on Mr. Rogers. I'm sure some of you saw this. 
And it included this um, like backlash in the 80s of people being like, this is wrecking children. They're becoming too soft. <laughs> I, I, have, I, encountered, I have encountered that sensibility days ago from a person who was like, they just need to learn to toughen up. And I'm like, do they? <laughs> you know, really, like I, would, I really want to ask, like is that what people need? I mean, I know there's a feeling like, you know, buck up. <laughs> so, and I come from that. I, I'm really good at it. <laughs> Think about how like, it, yeah, I, I, I can be, I can look very functional and be in very difficult situations. Yeah. I've seen that, training. Um, and I'm grateful, right? Like I do want to get the groceries, but I, but I, um, Maybe it's more just a feeling of like, can we counterbalance that a bit for a while? Maybe for the next few generations. Can we just spend some time with a counterweight to the ignoring all the feelings and just lift them up? Yeah. Um, there's a, I have brought a couple books with me. <clears throat> One of which is this book, uh, Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. Seen this book? It's a New York Times bestseller. Um, and, and kind of excitingly, Kathy Park Hong was one of the people that did a, um, an event with Ryan at the You and Me bookstore. Um, it was one of the first book events. So she interviewed him. She writes like, like her, it's her quote on the top of Ryan's book. Minor Feelings is a really beautiful book um, and a, it, which involves a lot of pain and um, but, and I really recommend reading, if you haven't. Um, it's, the subtitle is An Asian American Reckoning about her experience being an Asian American, Korean American. Um, and I can't really do, I, I can't do it justice. It's a complicated idea, the quote, minor feelings. Um, but, but she's describing, I'm just gonna see if there's like a, uh, she's, talking about, she's talking about watching Richard Pryor and having this resonance with his, his humor. So, uh, you know, under, understanding she's not a black man in America, but she's a Korean American woman, and like his humor was, was awakening, is what it sounds like something for her. And she said, um, In prior, I saw someone channel what I call minor feelings, the racialized rage of emotions that are negative, dysphoric, and therefore untelegenic, built from the sediments of everyday racial experience and the irritant of having one's perception of reality constantly questioned or dismissed. Minor feelings arise, for instance, upon hearing a slight, knowing it's racial, and being told, oh, it's all in your head. Is it like that? And, and, then, and actually, and she goes on, it's, it's also more complicated. Um, and then she says also, my term minor feelings is deeply indebted to the theorist, uh, please correct me if somebody knows, if I'm mispronouncing her name, um, it looks like Sian Nagai who wrote extensively on the affective quality of ugly feelings, negative emotions like envy, irritation, boredom, symptomatic of today's late capitalist gig economy. Like ugly feelings, minor feelings are non-cathartic states of emotion with a remarkable capacity for duration. So this kind of, yeah, the, the pain that comes with feelings that, yeah, non-cathartic, so they're not, it's not like rage but it's this, you know, the, the things. 
that needle and and how do we how do we care for those in again like in the dharma as bodhisattvas in our commitment to go down into the blue dragon's cave and take care of this world where where one of the suffering intersections is because we are vastly connected and we can't even make sense of that and and because we are um, so impacted by one another and because we are impermanent <laughs> so i was thinking about this this image of um like the leviathan or the the way that like if we look at one feeling and we and we let it out into the light it it has like generational histories there and i was like wait i was just somebody just described that and i realized it it was our sangha member ryan park uh, ryan lee wong <laughs> in his book which side are you on also recommend it's wonderful um i asked ryan if it was okay to include this passage <laughs> he said okay um, thank you, Ryan. Um, and he's talking about, uh, so this, this character, um, who is a young adult, um, whose parents are, one is Korean and the other is Chinese American and, um, struggling, you know, in, in part in the pain of, of minor feelings, but also in the pain of, of political and, and social and racial realities, how to meet them, how to do that skillfully. I feel like this book is full of dharma, of the dharma of how to do that. And, he's, and, and then the character, Reed, is driving along with his friend CJ, who's I think also Korean, Korean American. And he says, we, we came to the end of the 10, so a freeway, where the freeway's long journey from Florida ended and it morphed into a highway up the coast. It was the end of America's promise to let you speed from one end of the country to the other, to remake yourself overnight in a different state. Here was the finish line, the drop away into the ocean, the end of the destiny manifest. And once America had bloomed bloodily through this continent, a restlessness settled in and it pushed forward across the ocean, taking the Philippines and Hawaii, launching its armies into Vietnam and Korea, resulting in, among other things, CJ and me driving in a Toyota with our fucked up histories. The Toyota is relevant because his mother is Korean, but she like, and she didn't want to buy anything from the the colonial, <laughs> the colonizers. But then finally gave in when there was a Prius. <laughs> anyway, like that, you know, that actually these huge forces of of violence, which probably in large part come from the fact that people weren't dealing with their pain, you know. Like, I don't know how we could become so violent if, if not by way of, of subverting a bunch of pain, you know? I spend a lot of time trying to be like, what is motivating Vladimir Putin? I, I have no idea, you know, and I won't know. But like, like old-fashioned warfare in, in this time feels like, like, what is motivating that? And, and it seems to me like there's a lot of, you know, not necessarily like, oh, he just needs therapy. <laughs> but we need to collectively start to care for those currents so that they don't become the monsters you know, of continued colonial 
oppression internally and externally. And, and in that regard, I feel like I'm just receiving so many teachings from um, Tricia Hersey that Charlie also mentioned last week, who wrote the book, Rest is Resistance. Um, again, like, so I super recommend this book. It, it's, it's just such a beautiful, um, it's a manifesto, actually, about how to transgressively change our relationship to ourselves and then to one another. Um, by reclaiming our humanity. Actually, she used the term divinity. She says something like, any, any endeavor that goes against honoring your innate divinity, don't do it. <laughs> it's a really good compass. I was having a conversation this week with um, a Dharma a friend and, and sibling who um, he, we've, we've had a couple conversations over a few years and, and not often in between. Um, and he's doing a project. Like at first he was doing a dissertation on Dharma and social work and how the Dharma could be nourishing for social workers. And, and now he's doing a book about Dharma and social work and also social justice and wanting to create a book of the conversation between these things. And, and so, and at some point he stopped in this conversation and said, you know, when we talk about this, I am, I'm struck that you always talk about embodiment, you know, embodied practice. And I was like, yeah, why is that? <laughs> and I had this really clear thing happen in my mind that, um, about my acculturation, and I am, I'm hoping that it translates, even though you may not have had a similar acculturation. So I was raised in a, a somewhat Catholic, I was raised Catholic in, in a somewhat Catholic world view. And, and I was feeling into like what happens when we attune to our bodies and then also what feels to me like kind of the first, the, the primordial thing that has to happen um, for the delusion of separation to happen, which is uh, separating a person's consciousness from their own body. And, and there were many things that taught me this as a child. I lived in a very dissociated culture, actually. Um, but, the, but essentially it was like this, like, to be good, you had to take care of people in need. And that, so the number one, there was already a thing, a separation. Like it wasn't me, I was a good person, I was a good helping person. And also, um, so you forget about yourself and you do what people who have more need than you need. You know, like you help the needy. Sorry for the yucky language, but that was the wording. Um, this was selfless and this was good. And then if you invert that teaching, or, you know, like to a little kid, that what was also taught there was to pay attention to yourself was selfish and it was bad. That was a big moral par paradigm that I came from. And so then any time that we reattune to our body, we're, or for, for someone like me, I'll say anyway, I'm working with that, that primary injury uh, that let me separate from an embodied experience that then let me feel separate from my body, my, felt my awareness separate from my body, felt me separate from other people, and, and was just basically like a cacophony of delusion. You know? So 
Anytime, so it seems funny, right? Like, oh, I want to take care of the world. I want to connect with other people. There are actually studies that show when people spend a few, even just a few minutes um, doing what's called interoception, you know, turning this way, attuning to their own physical sensation, they, they score higher on empathy scales. We're more able to see other people when we see ourselves. And we're more able to see ourselves when we inhabit our, the fullness of our experience, which includes our bodies. So it starts to feel to me like almost like an ethic of attuning to our pain. And our other stuff, too, like our exhaustion. There's one that I was taught to leave out of the equation. Do not notice your fatigue. That's not relevant. There's stuff to do, you know. But what happens when we just even a little bit bring that back? I mean, Trisha Hurst is like, what happens when we bring that in? <laughs> what happens when we actually lie down? I, I saw a quote that said, <clears throat> you are responsible for becoming more ethical than the society you grew up in. I think it was attributed to this person, Eliezer Yubkowski. And it made me think of this, of, of this ethic of, a, of getting the support that we need. So not just doing this in a heroic individualistic way, because that only serves the thing. <laughs> the unskillful stuff, you know. but doing this with one another, finding out how together to value attuning to our experience. Yeah, to allow, to allow our distress to be worth recounting for ourselves and with each other. Um, and taking to heart this idea that clear eye bodhisattvas don't take this lightly. May our intention Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.